Good morning, family of God. There are a lot of details in this text, and the text is dealing with things about the invisible spiritual realm that can pique our curiosity. And so when dealing with a text like this, it can be easy to get lost in the details. And so I would love to take a moment at the beginning right now, before we do anything else, to talk about the main point of the text. Can we do that? Here's the main point of the text. I think it has two parts. One is a proclamation and the other is an invitation. The proclamation is this. King Jesus has come to overthrow the works of the devil and renew his good creation. That's what the text is all about. So everybody say, it's all about Jesus. This story has a lot of stuff in it, including a lot of stuff about demons. But the text is not about demons. It's about who? That's right. It's all about Jesus. King Jesus. He's the king. And he's a warrior king. We'll see as we look at some of the details of this text, he's presenting himself as a mighty warrior. There are real spiritual forces of evil, and he has come to win a fight and to renew creation. That's taught throughout the text, but if you want a focal point, you could just glance it down at verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So that's the proclamation. King Jesus has come to overthrow the works of the devil and renew his good creation. There's also an invitation that comes with that. Therefore, because that's who King Jesus is and what he's doing. Therefore, everyone hear the word of God. Everyone who hears the word of God and keeps it is blessed. Everyone who hears the word of God and keeps it is blessed. And I'm looking down to the very end. Glance down to verse 28 real quick with me. He said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So everybody say, hear the word, keep the word. That's what the text is all about. And we want to keep that on the forefront of our mind. And as we go, I pray that the Holy Spirit will do several things in our midst this morning. I pray that he'll make us more alert to the reality of the spiritual battle around us all the time. Church family, have you found that it's easy to get a little spiritually sleepy? It's easy to forget that there's a battle raging all the time. But I pray also that we would, by God's grace, leave here with a great sense of comfort and encouragement and confidence in that battle. I want to say just really personally from the very beginning, I know some of you in here are currently in the midst of some really serious spiritual battles. And what I want to say to you is do not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Some of you are in battles in your own spiritual life, battling sin, battling addiction, battling doubts, your own personal demons, literal or metaphorical. Don't lose heart. Some of you are facing spiritual conflict in your families. You're praying and fighting for your kids or other people in your families. Don't lose heart. Some of you are engaged in spiritual battles. In the community, you're sharing the gospel, you're making disciples, but the enemy doesn't play fair and he's not nice, is he? He attacks the people we're ministering to. And I want to say to you, don't lose heart. And I want to ask for your help. Could you turn to your neighbor before we get started and say, don't lose heart. Instead, hold fast to Jesus because Jesus wins. Jesus wins. He's the victorious king. 
And when, when we get tired in the battle, sometimes we want to step out of the battle into the sideline. But one of the things we'll see as we go through the text is that there is no sideline. There is no sideline. So trying to step out of the battle would be very counterproductive for us. Instead, what we want to do is charge into the battle in the name of Jesus. Confident not in ourselves, but in him. So I feel like God wants to speak some important words of encouragement and instruction to us this morning. For that reason, I want to pause before we start walking through this text and pray and ask for God's help. Would you bow your head with me? I'll give you a second and just invite you to where you are, silently pray for God's help this morning. And then I'm going to say a prayer for us. Our Father, you are a good Father. We thank you for loving us. Thank you that because of the gospel of Jesus, we can know you as Father. And if we've trusted in Christ, nothing can separate us from your love. Jesus, we worship you and acknowledge you are the King of kings. You're the Son of God. You're the Lord of lords. You're the mighty warrior. We praise you for your cross and resurrection. And we pray that your kingdom would come even today bringing freedom and power to us. And the Holy Spirit, we ask for your help. Would you be our comforter, our encourager, and our teacher this morning? Pray for all of us that you would give us the grace of attentive and understanding minds, retentive minds to remember what we've learned, and of soft hearts before your holy word. Pray for myself, Lord, that I would say everything you want me to say and nothing that you don't. That your Holy Spirit would give us grace that we would leave here worshiping Jesus and knowing him more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we begin to walk through this text, I want to start by looking at the action of Jesus. And notice, though this is a fairly dramatic text, most of the scripture we just read is just conversation about the action of Jesus. The action of Jesus is all in verse 14. And then everything else is just talking about what just happened and reflecting on it. So let's look first at the action of Jesus. Verse 14 says, now he, that is Jesus, casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke. First thing to note about this verse is that demons are real. Demons are real. And as we've studied the gospel of Luke... We've encountered Jesus confronting demons many times. And so we've talked about this over the last few months. But here's the reality we need to keep in the forefront of our mind. If we lived south of the equator or if we lived in the eastern hemisphere, we would all already be fully convinced that spirit beings exist and that they interact with our daily life. And it's, it's not because of some lack of scientific knowledge. Amen. Science all over the world. It's because they have cultures that are attuned to that reality. Whereas in Western, in the Northwest part of the globe, we went through an enlightenment. We had a lot of historical developments that make it very hard for us to feel like anything is real that you cannot empirically observe in a laboratory um, setting. So if you can't put it under a telescope, or you can't, uh, a microscope rather, or see it through a telescope, we don't want to believe it. And here's the thing. You're not going to get angels to submit to your laboratory test, right? 
you can do tests on rats, but rats would have a hard time doing tests on you. And in this analogy, the angel's more powerful than you are. Amen, church? And smarter. So if we think that the only things that exist are things that we can scientifically verify, we're just going to be a blind to a lot of reality. And if you step back and, you know, be philosophical for a second, does it really make sense to think that the only things that exist are the things you can scientifically verify? That's just a prejudice, right? Now, I'm not going to spend any more time trying to convince you of this this morning. I'm just acknowledging it from the beginning. And if you're feeling skeptical, I'll just say this. You might be wondering, Can't, couldn't I get through my whole Christian life without ever really thinking about demons? Some of you might have had thought that question. And I think a short answer to that question would be like, yes, you could trust in Jesus and obey Jesus and read your Bible and never really think about demons and still go to heaven. Amen. Isn't God good? Um, you could you could do that. But I want you to think about an analogy. You could also get through your whole life without thinking about germs. Right. As a matter of fact, for centuries until very recently, for most of human histories, people went through their whole life without thinking about germs. And and uh, the problem was a lot of them died much younger, didn't they? And, and as soon as we learned about germs, we started doing some stuff we didn't used to do, like soap and hand sanitizer, which some of us didn't start doing till 2020. But now we do it more. Some of us be wearing masks now. We've, our perspective has changed. And there's some things that we maybe used to do that we stopped doing, like passing the soda around, although my kids still do that, even after 2020. Uh, but... There's some things that you do a little differently. And if you didn't, if you ask, okay, what's at stake? What's the difference? Well, I would say about 35 years on average. That's the difference it made, right? To, to take germs seriously, to learn, to learn about that reality. So similarly, I would say here, if you trust in Jesus, follow Jesus, you can be saved and go to heaven without ever thinking about demons. But if there's a reality that there's stuff you can't see with your eye called germs, it's helpful to have that information. Likewise, if you're in a spiritual battle with all sorts of enemies raging around you all the time, it's helpful to have that information. And it can help you to live as a wiser, more fully equipped person in tune with the reality of what's happening in the world. And of course, demons are not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is definitely sin. Because of sin, death is a problem for us and demons are a problem for us. But the fact that they're not our biggest problem doesn't mean we should ignore them. Germs aren't our biggest problem either. But you should still wash your hands. Amen, church family? Now, the fact that this demon was mute is significant for multiple reasons. As you look through the Gospels and ask the question, what do demons do? The main thing that they're trying to do is keep people from knowing and trusting the Lord. And as they're doing that, they're always making assaults on human dignity. Demons dehumanize. Demons dehumanize. They hate the glory of God as reflected in God's image bearers. So they're always making assaults on human dignity. You could think about the Gadarene demoniac whom we read about several months ago. He was living in the tombs. He was naked. He was cutting himself. They were, he was made in the image of God. He still had dignity, but they were trying to hide and obscure that reality. Demons are always dehumanizing. And... Language, the ability to communicate, is one of the beautiful ways that we express ourselves as human beings. It allows us to connect to one another. Are you thankful for words, church? 
Now, we, we can note the reality that there are many things that can cause us to lose that ability. And a person who, for any of those reasons, is unable to speak is still made in the image of God. They're loved by God. He's precious. They're precious to him. And if you have loved ones who are in that situation, God loves them. But aren't you looking forward to heaven or sooner when you're able to have a conversation with them and talk and know them better? See, language allows us to express our identity as God's image bearers. It allows us to connect with God in a special way and to connect with one another. Actually, the, the word here may indicate that this man was both mute and deaf because of this demon. And if you go look at Matthew's gospel, it seems that he also was blind. So a very difficult situation. Some of you have read the story of Helen Keller and, and, and heard her account as she gained the ability to communicate of what it was like growing up, not able to see or hear. That has a very isolating effect. Demons dehumanize. And one of the things that means is that demons isolate. They don't want us to live in communion with God or with one another. We were made for fellowship with God. We were made to know God. And God said it's not good for us to be alone. We're made for relationship with one another. So demons are always trying to isolate. They're trying to dehumanize. Jesus came to overcome the effects of sin, to overthrow the devil and all the works of demons and to restore the dignity of God's good creation. So one day when Jesus returns in glory and all those who have trusted in him are living with him in his new creation, all that has been damaged by sin and disease and death will be set right and will live in perfect fellowship with God and with one another. That's what Jesus came to do. And in this little story of exorcism and of healing, what we're getting is a little foretaste of that. This person couldn't speak, probably couldn't hear or see, very isolated. And Jesus comes and Jesus confronts this evil spirit, cast it out, and the mute man spoke. He was healed. I really wish I know the first thing he said. Don't you wish you could be there to see that? I would guess it's something like, praise God, praise Jesus, but I don't know. And all the people there, many of the people there started to marvel. Jesus came to restore the dignity of this man. The fact that he was mute is also significant for another reason. And I won't spend a, a lot of time on this, but we know a fair amount about Jewish exorcisms and how they worked and about Christian exorcisms after Jesus and how people confront and then and now confronted and cast out demons and usually that involves a process of prayer that's forcing a demon to, if, if we just read about how his Jewish exorcists did it at the time, if we read about Christian deliverance ministry, it, a process of prayer that's forcing a demon to um, reveal its name and the stronghold it claims in this person's life so that through prayer and counseling and so on, that stronghold can be removed and the person can cast out the demon. And so Jewish exorcists at this time would say, this, if a demon is mute and if the man can't talk, that's going to be almost impossible to cast out the demon. But you'll notice Jesus doesn't need to do any of that. He doesn't need to do any of that. All, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So he just says, go, and they have to go. And what's important there is um, God's people, already, we got historical accounts and Jesus acknowledges this, already had ways of praying with and dealing with. The reality of evil spirits, but what they're seeing in Jesus 
is a kind of power that was totally unprecedented. Nothing like this had ever been seen before. So that's the action. Now we get the reaction of the crowd. Let's pick up in verse 14. It says, and the people marvel. So most of the people are just amazed. They're in awe at the power of Jesus. And probably many of them were beginning to think, should we be trusting this guy? Should we worship him? Should we follow him? As a matter of fact, again, if you go compare it to Matthew's gospel, we're told many of them started to ask, is this the son of David? In other words, is this the Messiah, the savior we've been waiting for? But not everybody was thinking that way. Verse 15 says some of them and Matthew's gospel identifies these folks as Pharisees. Some of the religious leaders who are very committed to scripture, but did not like Jesus, which means they were not getting what the scripture was really about. The Pharisees said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Beelzebul was a Jewish name for the leader of the demonic power, Satan or the devil, which drew on Baal, the main rival of uh, the Lord that. Uh, in, in the surrounding religions that we read about in the Old Testament, a false god, and con- combining that with a word for dung. Actually, the ancient church would sometimes translate this Lord of the Flies is what they mean. But the point here is they're using a very insulting title to blaspheme the Lord and say he's an instrument of Satan. That's why he's got this power. That's very serious. There's others, though, that they're not going that far. They're not blaspheming, but they're still skeptical. They're still not convinced. It's verse 16 says, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, the interesting thing about that is he just did a really impressive sign. And throughout the gospel, he's been doing all sorts of miracles. But if I don't want to believe there's no amount of evidence that's going to get me there. This should make us alert to a reality that we need to think about. God gave human beings the gift of reason. Aren't you glad God made you where you can think? He gave us the gift of reason. And he gave it to us so that we could know God, so that we could know the truth and walk in the truth. And exercise our calling to be stewards of his earth. But because of our sin, human beings have become very good at abusing our reasoning faculties in perverse ways to suppress the truth whenever it is convenient for us to do so. Romans 1.18, you remember Paul said that people by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. Psychologists talk about rationalization, which means if I'm being a jerk and I want to keep being a jerk, I can use my reasoning faculties to explain why it's very rational for me to keep being a jerk. This ha- if you don't believe this, just get into an argument with your spouse, record it, and then come back and listen to it a few months later. Both people in that argument have great powers of rationalization. It's very possible to come up with plausible alternative expl- explanations to what we read in the Gospels if we really want to. But here's the thing. The Gospel is still true. Still true. Jesus is still king. So we have to ultimately deal with reality. The pastor, Harold Bullock down in Fort Worth, my wife grew up in Hope Church where he was pastor. 
One of the things he liked to say was reality is what you run into when your beliefs are wrong. Reality is what you run into when your beliefs are wrong. You know, we're so awash in a relativistic culture that we tend to not think that way. Um, but I found by personal experience that reality is what I run into when my beliefs are wrong. For example, I've been in a parking lot trying to turn and it's crowded. And I think that Impala is a good six inches away still. And uh, I really believe that that was true. And uh, I but I kept hugging that turn and reality, in this case, the Impala was what I scraped into. It cost a lot of money to fix a little bit of paint that went away from the Impala, by the way. This was many years ago. This was not recent, but um, it was a sad day. And I could have then been like, Impala, who are you to project your beliefs on me like that? How dare you say that your truth has to be my truth? Don't you know that we all have a standpoint, Isaac, that we're looking at reality from? Haven't you heard about the sociology of knowledge? But here's the thing. Reality is what you run into when your beliefs are wrong. And these people could use their God-given gift of reason to suppress the truth and to fight against the truth. But here's the call for us today, church. Don't suppress the truth. Jesus is king. He's the king. Trust him. So that's the reaction of the crowd. And then most of our text is Jesus responding to this reaction by teaching people. Verse 17 says... But he, knowing their thoughts, maybe we should just pause right there. Jesus knew their thoughts. Church family, Jesus knows your thoughts too. John chapter 2 verse 25 says, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows our hearts. He knows all of our secret thoughts. And some of us find this scary But actually, I want to convince you, you should be really encouraged by that. If you want to hold on to your evil and hide from God, this is a scary thought. But if you want to experience healing from God, you should be encouraged by that. Because as I've gone through life and tried to discover what is true about God and the world and myself, I've discovered that I do not understand most things. I do not know most things, but I have progressed enough in self-knowledge to know that inside my soul, there are many knots that I cannot untangle. Anybody else discovered that? I can't see most of them. Most of what's going on down here, I don't even know what it is. Proverbs told us that a long time before Freud did. But most of what's going on inside of me, I don't know, I don't understand. Um, But I've seen enough to know there are desires and thoughts and things going on inside of me Knots that I cannot untangle. And it's really good news that Jesus sees it all and understands it all. And he's here to help. He knew their thoughts. And so the verse continues. He said to them, and then he begins to teach. First thing he says is every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a divided household fails. And if Satan is also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. First thing I want you to notice, the the Pharisees, their reaction is a very passionate, blasphemous reaction. 
They've got a lot of emotion, negative emotion here. And Jesus responds. He doesn't take the bait. He's just so calm and rational. He's just reasoning with them here. He stays calm. And the first thing that he says is basically that little bit of blasphemy doesn't make very much sense. If I'm if I'm doing what I'm doing by the power of Satan, what what would be the motivation there? Jesus is walking around healing sick people, casting out demons, teaching the scriptures, calling people to repent, worship God and love their neighbors. That would be a really terrible plan of Satan if he was trying to advance his kingdom, wouldn't it? So he's just trying to say what you're saying doesn't make any sense. That's response number one. And then he says your own followers would be quick to correct you, because, again, we know that within the Jewish community, there were people who were exorcists who would cast out demons. They weren't nearly as good at it as Jesus was, but there were people who had that ministry, including apparently some disciples of the Pharisees and said, if they were here, they would say, wait a minute. We just we saw what you saw and that that was not the devil casting out the devil. That's not what happened right here. And then verse 20, we're back to it again, is really the heart of the passage. But if it is by the finger of God, I encourage you to underline those three words, finger of God. Everybody say finger of God. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is the key to the whole text. That little phrase finger of God is a phrase that has many Old Testament resonances. The, the words finger of God appear at various points throughout the Old Testament and other times you, we see a visible finger. God. Moses says that God wrote the first copy of the Ten Commandments by his finger. In the book of Daniel, we read about a mysterious hand appearing and writing a word of judgment. But I think the main reference that Jesus is alluding to is probably from Exodus chapter eight. If you want to flip over there in your Bible, you can flip with me. Here's what's happening in Exodus chapter eight. God's people had been enslaved by an oppressive power, namely the Egyptians. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord heard their cry and raised up a deliverer. What was his name? That's right. It was Moses. And God sent Moses with power to say, let my people go. You cannot enslave my people. But Pharaoh would not listen. And God told Moses, Pharaoh has a hard heart. He's not going to listen. So I'm going to do signs of power through you. To get the attention of the people who think they can oppress my people. And so God started working through Moses to bring plagues. You remember he turned the water into blood. But Moses, I mean, Pharaoh was trying to not be intimidated by this power of God. So he kept calling his magicians. It's not quite clear. Are these magicians uh, illusionists? Are they tricksters? Or are these people that are actually dabbling in some sort of demonic power? I tend to think probably the latter, but... Not quite clear from the text, but the magicians keep imitating and copying what Moses is doing until he gets to a certain plague where he makes a bunch of gnats come. And so then the magicians try to do that and they can't and they've never seen anything like this. And here's what we read. Exodus chapter eight, verse 19 says, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. I think Jesus is evoking that story. 
Just like Israel was enslaved, this man was enslaved by this demon that had dehumanized him and isolated him for all these years. Just like the finger of God was outstretched through the ministry of Moses to show his power and set his people free. Now, to a much greater extent, the finger of God is outstretched with power through Jesus, the son of God. And just like Pharaoh hardened his heart, so the Pharisees are hardening their hearts and won't listen. Jesus is saying, no, it's not by Satan that I drive out demons. God God has showed up among you to set his people free. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God, you've got to underline those three words too, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Everybody say, the kingdom of God. It's been a major phrase throughout the Gospel of Luke. The kingdom of God means God's power, God's authority. Coming into the world to drive out the evil usurpers and set things right. And the kingdom of God is centered on the person of Jesus. Where Jesus is, there is the kingdom of God because Jesus is the God-man and Jesus is the king. Jesus is king. That's the point. That's the point. This story is not ultimately about demons, guys. Everybody say, it's all about Jesus. And Jesus, the king, is coming to overthrow the power of evil and to restore The glory of his creation to set people free and especially to restore the dignity of human beings made in the image of God. So don't harden your heart. Don't be like Pharaoh. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't use your God-given gift of reason to explain away Jesus. Instead, cry out to him and say, Jesus, set me free. Jesus, set me free. And then Jesus continues. Verses 21 and 22 are really good, church. If you if you are a Christ follower and you come to understand verses 21 and 22, these are very encouraging verses. Jesus says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides the spoil. What does that mean? The the strong man, written at the beginning of verse 21, is a demon. The demon who had made this poor man mute and probably deaf and blind for many years, compared to a human being, he was strong, wasn't he? Nobody had been able to stop him. And when that man woke up that morning, the demon felt pretty secure. He felt pretty confident. A strong man, fully armed. He was strong. He guards his own palace here. The palace here is referring to this human being whom the demon is exploiting to take up his abode here. It says his goods are safe. When, when this guy woke up that morning, the demon felt like his goods were safe. But then, as it turns out, you never know. When you wake up in the morning, you never know what's going to happen, right? As it turns out, This demon was about to encounter a power beyond his reckoning. When one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, that's Jesus right there. What what is the text saying? Jesus is saying that demon was strong for you, but not for me. 
When one stronger than him attacks him, the demon, and overpowers him, overcomes him, he takes away his armor. The demon is stripped of his power and authority. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is saying, I'm the king and I'm a warrior king. And demons claim people for themselves, but I've come to reclaim what is mine. I've come to reclaim what is mine. Psalm 24, 1, by the way, says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Which is why I don't like to use the term demon possessed, which is not in the Bible. You know who owns every person? It's Jesus. This demon may have taken up residence here, but Jesus came to reclaim his own. He came to reclaim his own. And warrior kings, I mean, there's a lot of stories about warrior kings in history and in literature. And I could have um, brought some highfalutin literary references. But you know what I was really thinking about this week is T'Challa. I was thinking about Black Panther. That movie's awesome, right? And uh, T'Challa, I mean, there's kings and there's warriors. But T'Challa's a warrior king, Right. There's a nobility to that. There's a dignity to that. And he's a peacemaker. And he's noble. And uh, it's a great movie. It's a great story. But T'Challa and King Arthur and all the other great warrior kings in history and literature were just a, a little faint echo of the real warrior king. What's his name, church? Jesus. It's his world. And he came to set it right. And wherever there are demonic powers or forces of evil trying to enslave people, he has come to... Well, what does it say? He attacks them. He overcomes them. He takes away his arm, their armor in which they trusted, and he divides their spoil, which means after he wins the battle, he passes out the plunder to the church. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? What I'm trying to say, church, is that's your Jesus. That's your Jesus. That's your Savior. So if you are going through some spiritual battles and you feel discouraged, don't lose heart. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, don't lose heart. Here's the thing. Jesus is fighting with you and Jesus is fighting for you and he does not lose. He's undefeated. And we need to connect that to the next verse. Verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. What does that mean? Church, there are no neutral parties in this war. And there is no sideline. That's what I was trying to say to you earlier. If you get discouraged in the spiritual battle... And think, this is too much. I'm going to step back into the sideline. There is no sideline. There is no sideline. The only option is to be actively in the work. Notice Jesus didn't just say you're either with him or against him. He says, whoever does not gather with me scatters. Well, what's that image? To gather with Jesus is to be about the business of the kingdom. To gather with Jesus is to be doing what he's called us to do. Making disciples, confronting the power of evil in the world with the truth and love of God. There's no sideline. To sit on the sideline is to disobey King Jesus. That's a terrible idea if you're in the middle of a war zone. Which we are. He's saying there's no neutral parties. We can connect this to what Jesus said back in chapter 9. If you remember Luke chapter 9, what was going on there was um, actually some, some people cast out demons in the name of Jesus. But these people were not among the group that normally follows Jesus around. So John saw it and said, we told him to stop. 
But Jesus said, don't tell him to stop. Don't tell him to stop. If he's not against me, he's for me. You remember that? Luke chapter 9, verse 50. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against me, against you, rather, is for you. If he's on my team and you're on my team, he's on your team. If he's not against you, he's for you. And now he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you put that together, the point is clear. There's no neutral parties there's no sideline. We're either with Jesus or we're against him. And beloved, I just want to talk to your heart for a second. Choose wisely. Choose wisely. Every square inch of the contest, uh, cosmos is contested ground right now. We already know who's going to win. That's Jesus. And if you think about it, why would you want to pick anybody other than Jesus in this battle? We already know he's going to win and he loves you. On the other side is losers who hate you. Demons came to dehumanize, to destroy, to alienate. They came to tear your life apart. I could see if you thought that the mean people were going to win, you would choose the mean winner instead of the nice loser. But the one that loves you is going to win. So why would you choose anywhere else? And this is gospel, it's grace, it's also a call to discipleship. Jesus is saying, come join the movement of my kingdom. Trust in Jesus, trust in Jesus, put your faith in him. And he wraps up his teaching in verse 24 through 26 with these words. When the unclean spirit had gone, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What does that mean? Well, for from the perspective of the unclean spirit, which is another way to talk about demons. From their perspective, getting cast out of a person is apparently a very unpleasant experience. They wander around through waterless places seeking rest. There's lots of ancient texts that might give us a clue to what that means, but the important point is just that they go through terrible agony. They've rebelled against God, and they're coming under judgment. And to get cast out causes them great suffering, great pain, so they will try to come back. And they're going to kind of try to come back with some of their allies and bully their way back into a person's life. Now, Jesus is not saying this is what happens every time. Otherwise, he wouldn't keep casting out these demons. He's not saying that's what happens every time. But he is saying if they come back and the stronger warrior who kicked them out is not there, the house is just neat and swept in order and clean and nice then they're going to come and they're going to bring their friends and that person is going to be worse off than they were before. If, if uh, your house is invaded by a bully and then a strong king comes and kicks that bully out and then asks to stay in your house and you say no and the bully comes back and his friends, you're going to be in trouble. Do you understand? That's the analogy here. You already know the answer to this question, but let's just say it. If that person who just had that demon cast out wants to be safe and secure, what needs to happen? Who needs to stay in that house? Everybody say it's all about Jesus. 
What are the implications of this? Well, there's, there's several, but here's a few to think about. If you want to know that you are safe, secure, and free, the key is not being sure that there's no demons around. If you want to know that you're safe and secure and free, the key is letting Jesus live in every room of your house. In other words, our security and our peace and our freedom is not so much based on the absence of demons as it is the presence of Jesus. I would prefer to have the presence of Jesus and no demons around. Wouldn't you, church? But Ephesians 6 says there's going to be demons around. Ephesians 6, 12. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil, and the heavenly places, cosmic powers over this present darkness. There, there's going to be evil spirits around. And the reality is, I don't like dealing with demons. I'd rather not deal with another demon for the rest of my life. But I'm not too worried about the presence of demons. Rather, I'm focused on the presence of Jesus. I want to have Jesus filling me up. And if Jesus is with me, I can have joy, confidence and peace, even if I'm surrounded by a thousand demons. Jesus versus everybody is not a fair fight. Jesus is going to win. If Jesus were not with me, then I would be in big trouble, even if the closest demon was miles away. I almost named a place. For some reason, Stillwater came to my mind. I guess I've been in Oklahoma long enough. I don't know. I wasn't even trying to make a joke. I just <laughs> take any. <laughs> I'm sorry to all the fans. <laughs> Or Norman, I mean, anywhere, for example. <laughs> Could be in Golden State, right, Paul? Anywhere. <laughs> if the closest demon is far away, but I'm not filled with Jesus, I'm still in a very vulnerable position. Because first time anybody tough comes by, I'm in big trouble. So what we're trying to say, friends, if, if you want to be safe and secure and know that you can have peace the key is being filled with Jesus. The key is being filled with Jesus. And that connects us to this last little story, which may kind of feel like it doesn't quite fit, but actually it, it does. Look, look at the last two verses in your text. It says, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God. And keep it. Now, that opening phrase, as he said these things, connects these verses to what came right before. This is the same event. It's the same story. Jesus has been teaching. The Pharisees have been disbelieving. And this woman speaks up. She's actually praising Jesus. But then Jesus gently redirects her. That's what happens right here. And. Luke includes this story and connects it to what just came before. Though Jesus redirects this woman, she's not a bad guy in this story. She's not like the Pharisees who had hard hearts. Actually, the person she's acting most like is Elizabeth from Luke chapter 1. Do you remember this story? If you got your Bible, Luke chapter 1. Mary, the virgin, trusted the word of the Lord. She became pregnant with baby Jesus. Her cousin Elizabeth in her old age, also became miraculously present, pregnant. Mary came to visit Elizabeth, 
And we read in Luke chapter one, starting in verse 41. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with who? The Holy Spirit. She's prophesying. She's filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry to Mary, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. What this woman says is a lot like what Mary said under the inspiration. I mean, Elizabeth said under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, she's honoring Jesus by honoring the mother of Jesus. So why does Jesus gently redirect this woman here? I think Luke's gospel gives Mary an honored position as a faithful servant of the Lord, as a role model of faith in God's word. But warns us against being too focused on Mary because our focus is supposed to be one place. And you already know the answer. Who are we supposed to focus on? It's all about Jesus. And this is much like something we read in Luke chapter 10. I'm not going to read it for you because we're out of time. But in Luke chapter 10, when the 72 cast out demons, remember, they came back and they were very happy that the demons submit to them in Jesus name. They were happy about that. But Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons submit to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He refocused them on the gospel. And here he refocuses them on this. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Which, by the way, is, is exactly how Elizabeth's statement ended. You, did you hear that? Luke 145. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. In other words, if you want to honor Mary rightly, honor her by imitating her faith in the scriptures and focusing on Jesus. That's what the text is teaching. And Jesus is saying, focus on the gospel, focus on me. And here, focus on trusting and obeying the word of God. Trusting and obeying the word of God. Because King Jesus is who he is. If we hear God's word and keep it, we have nothing to fear from demons. They can do smoke and mirror shows, but who really cares? We're secure in the hands of our Savior. The way to take refuge in Jesus is to hear God's word and keep it. The way to invite Jesus to inhabit your house is to hear God's word and keep it. We could say this negatively. If you want to be vulnerable to demonic influence and attack, just disobey God's word and disbelieve his promises. Sin is the way to do that. Those who have been involved in deliverance ministry will tend to tell you, especially sexual immorality, bitterness, the occult. There's certain sorts of sins, but really any sin. Guys, don't mess around with Ouija boards. Don't mess around with tarot cards. Don't have seances. Don't open yourself up to demonic counterfeit of Christian spirituality by seeking spiritual experiences instead of seeking holiness. Don't don't disbelieve or disobey the word of God. Ephesians 4:27 when it's in the context of calling the church of Jesus Christ not to give in to bitterness says do not give the devil a foothold. Don't make room for the devil. What's the solution if if that happens? Well James 4:7 submit yourselves therefore to God. Repent. Repent and submit yourselves therefore to God 
and resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you hear the word of God and keep it, that means repenting of sin, trusting in Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit, going to work, fighting the fight. Don't give up. You fight the fight. And you don't have to fight alone. As a matter of fact, if there's anybody here who feels like you're facing, I'm sure there are a number of people who feel like you're facing a lot of spiritual warfare in your life right now. Don't don't try to fight it alone. Talk to your community group. Come talk to your pastor. Come talk to me. I'd love to pray with you after the service. You don't have to fight alone. But I want to end by bringing us back to the, na- the main point, the main thing, the main thing. Here was the proclamation. King Jesus has come to overthrow the works of the devil and renew his good creation. Isn't Jesus awesome, guys? He's awesome. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is our hope. He made he took away the power of the devil over us at the cross because the cross is where we get forgiveness of sins, which is where the devil loses his ground. The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of the renewal of the dignity of God's creation. He came to destroy the works of the devil and to set everything right. The invitation, therefore, is hear the word of God and keep it. We're going to pray now. And I'm going to give you a couple prayer prompts before we uh, worship the Lord through song to end our service today. But last night, as I was praying for you, church, I felt like the Holy Spirit brought one more thing to mind that I want to share. This I pray this is a word of comfort, comfort for those of you, for those of you that are in the fight. I pray this is a word of encouragement. Um, If you've been living in secret sin, I just pray that the Holy Spirit will use this to encourage you to repent of that sin, confess it, get somebody to pray with you and just uh, fight. Let's fight together. But the word that I felt like the Holy Spirit was bringing to my mind last night is you need to go tell them to reengage the fight. Jesus is the king and he's fighting. And, And here's what I'm saying. If you're discouraged by sin in your own life, um, I've been there. But it's easy to just get stuck in discouragement. And what King Jesus is saying is, I will fight for you to stand up and fight. If you're discouraged by what's happening in your family. Which is is some of the worst pain and discouragement we can deal with. The Psalms give us a language of lament, but just lament by itself is not enough. We need to lament. Then we need to believe the gospel and get up and fight. Amen, church. If you're discouraged because people that you care about, you see them under attack, we need to learn how to fight. But here's the thing. If we're fighting, who's fighting with us and for us, church? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So I'm going to invite you to stand now. And if you would, put your hands in a posture of receiving. The first thing I want to ask you is to just ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Here's the way I want to put it. Are there rooms in your house that you need to invite Jesus into? Another way to put it, are there areas of your life that you've been holding back from Jesus? Are there sins you've been holding on to that you don't want to deal with? Lies you've been lies you've been believing. Rooms in your house you need to invite Jesus into. If so, I just want to give you a moment right now just to talk to the Lord about that. And I would encourage you just to say, I repent of this sin and say, Jesus, come and fill my house. Come fill every room of my house.
I'm going to pray for you in a moment that he will do that. But I'm going to encourage you also, if those things are coming to mind, don't try to fight it alone. Get with a pastor or with a trusted, wise Christian friend and start talking about it. Get somebody to pray with you and fight that battle with you. Now I want you to ask the Holy Spirit one more question. Who are the people around me, the people in my life that I need to pray for? Because I don't know what battles they're facing. And just whoever the Lord brings to your mind, let's just take a few minutes to pray for them. We need to support each other in the battle and we need to contend for our community. After I pray for you, we're going to sing to the Lord. And one of the things I want to encourage you is that worshiping Jesus is spiritual warfare. When Judah was surrounded and King Josephat prayed, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God raised up a prophet that said, go to battle, but send the singers in front, which is usually not a good battle strategy. But they went in front worshiping and the Lord uh, went before them and won battles. Worshiping the Lord is spiritual warfare. Also, so is intercessory prayer. And um, as we're singing, I want to invite, if the Lord would put it on your heart, an opportunity just to come to the front and pray. If you want somebody to pray with you, I'm going to be up here on my knees praying. You can tap me on the shoulder. I'd be glad to pray for you. But if there's anything in your life, you just need to ask for God's grace. It's an opportunity for you to get on your knees in a posture of humility before the Lord and pray. But also, if there's people that are on your heart to intercede for, we want to be a house of prayer for all nations. We want to be intercessors that are praying for God to bring his deliverance in the life of others. So I'll just invite you, if it's on your heart, to come kneel and pray for yourself or for others as the Lord leads. Let me say a prayer for you first. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you've been with us today. Holy Spirit, thank you for answering our prayers and being our teacher. Jesus, again, we acknowledge you. And Lord, we know that there is a reality of a spiritual battle in us and all around us. But Jesus, you are the victorious warrior king. We worship you. We worship you. You defeated the powers of darkness by your cross and resurrection. And if there's anyone here who has not surrendered to Jesus for the first time and trusted him, I pray this would be the day of salvation. If there's any here who are yours, but they've been under attack from the enemy. I pray that uh, today would be a day of victory and healing and grace and deliverance. And if those that are on our minds that you called us to minister to. That are under assault, we pray for freedom. That you would break bonds and set people free and restore the glory of your creation. Pray all these things in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.